Good morning, family. It's good to see you this morning. We have a bunch of people among us that's new starting this year, fresh, and that's our Year of Your Life students. Where are our Year of Your Lifers? So come on, you must stand quickly. Come on, stand just right where you are. We had the privilege of just meeting with them and their parents yesterday for a little bit of time. Yeah, come on, give them a good Hatfield welcome. We're so excited about you starting this journey this year with us as a church and part of this family, and we know it's going to be a life-changing year for you, and it's going to be just great. If you are a young person and you don't know what to do this year, this may be something that you would consider. If you want to, contact our team, and they would gladly help you and get the information, and you can join us for the Year of Your Life program. But can we pray for these guys today as a community and just welcome them and embrace them and receive them and speak a blessing over them? So if you can raise your hands and just sort of pointed in this direction over here, and uh, let's just bless them. Father, we thank you for the Year of Your Life program, for 29 years of new students starting, Father, and, and for the great journeys that they've had. So many lives that's been impacted and just being, become just people closer to you and closer to their purpose and their mission in life. And Father, we pray that this group would just experience your grace in a particular way in their lives and that they would journey with you in such a powerful and beautiful way this year. We welcome them, we receive them, they say they're part of our family, and we bless them, Father, and may they experience your goodness through this year in Jesus' name. Everybody say? Amen. Amen. It's wonderful to have them start with this year. I know 29 years ago, because 29 years ago, I was sitting over there starting my year of your life journey, so we have a count on it. Um, this morning, I want to share with you a message that is the first part of two parts. So uh, the title of the message is Going the Distance. So this morning, we're going half the distance. Next week, we'll go the other half. And it's very important that you get both messages because otherwise, you're going to have an incomplete picture. So I encourage you, if you can, be here next week with us and journey the whole process. Or otherwise, if you can't, you're welcome to you know, watch on YouTube or listen on our SoundCloud or through our website. But please, this is, a, I believe, an important word for us at the beginning of this year as we continue on to just orientate and point ourselves in the direction where God wants us to go. Thank you just from my side. I know the guy spoke about it in the service already, but just for everybody's just impetus with us in this week of the prayer and fasting. I think it was a wonderful week in both churches. It was so great to see the momentum of God's people as they are trusting him for this year and for God's moving in our churches. Going the distance. How many of you have heard this saying, it's not how you begin, it's how you end? I mean, it's become a little cliche, isn't it? I think it's nonsense. I want to change that. I, I want to make it all about the beginning. Because if it was just about the beginning, you know, my trophy cabinet at home would be full. If I got a prize for every time I started well, I would feel so much better about myself. Life would be so much more. I would have amazing awards and trophies if it was just about the start. So I want to start a movement today called the Starters Club. Do you want to join my club? Do you want to be part of my movement? Forget about this other end of the line, you know, getting to the target point or getting to the finishing line. Man, it's about the start. And I'm going to make it about the start. I want a group of people to join me. We're going to go to marathons. And, and we're going to stand there at the start. And when the gun goes, we're going to run for about 20 meters. And then we're going to braai and hand out awards. And one of our awards will be the trophy for good intentions. Hey, come on. 
or, or the best dressed beginner will be another thing. Or the, the great attitude. Come on, you wanna join my movement? We can, we can do this, people. We can start this. It doesn't really matter where the movement goes. As long as we can get it started. As long as we can launch something. Our logo is gonna be that, that, that starting pistol. That's gonna be our logo. It's all about the start. I mean, Afrikaans has a saying, goed begin, half gewin. Do you know what that means? If, if you start well, you've won half the battle. We're gonna say, if you've started well, it's all the battle. There's nothing else matters. Let's start well. I so wish it wasn't true that it's all about the end. The start is important, but it's going the distance, ultimately, that gives us the success we want. And it's no different in our spiritual journeys, isn't it? If our spiritual journey was just about starting well, how many of you know that we would be, yeah, we'd have a lot to celebrate? But it's not how we start the journey merely, it's going the distance. Paul says, I run the race set before me. To complete the race, to, to forget what is behind, to strain what is ahead, he uses language and he says, to lay hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. We, we start well, but it's about getting the job done, going the distance. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about this week and next week. So I'm, I'm serious. I'm going to start my own movement, the starters movement. It just makes me feel a lot better. So if you want to start my movement, I'll meet you afterwards. But if nobody comes, that's also okay. As long as I start, that's fine. You know, we don't have to go anywhere. But what is it in our spiritual life particularly that keeps us from going the distance in the Lord? That so often we start well. We start with such great intentions. We start with such great attitude and we dressed for success and we're up for this and we're ready. But then we lose speed and we lose steam and, you know, around the first bend, a lot of us just fade out and we just don't do it. What is it? Why do we not go the distance? But perhaps before we can answer that question, we need to ask, what is the distance we have to go? Where are we going? What is our finishing line? What is our objective? What are we trying to reach in our spiritual life? Now, I think the scripture has a lot to say about this and there's many different ways you can define it. But for my purposes, sorry, let me just put that out of my way. But for my purposes, I wanna use a particular scripture that of Jesus where he describes in some way our finish line, the objective that is ahead of us, the target that we have to reach. And that comes from Matthew 5. And you know in Matthew 5, Jesus spoke the Beatitudes and he had a lot to say about life and the practicalities of life. And he spoke about how we should live life, what our orientation to life should be and our attitudes. And, and then he spoke about things like anger and he spoke about how to treat your enemies and he spoke about divorce and he spoke about lots of different things. And what is it? He was defining for his disciples how he sees life and what he thinks life is all about. But then he ends it with this statement. Sort of he wraps up and he brings together all those different elements that he said about what the, the, the biblical life or the godly life should look like and elements that it contains. And he ends it with this sentence in Matthew 5, verse 48. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's sort of the finish line. He says, this is the objective. This is where we're all going. You have to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, surely the word perfect in this sentence must be some euphemism. It must be some description for you must give your best. It must be some description for just put your heart into it. Just, just do the best you can. Just have a great attitude. 
Surely it can't mean perfect, complete, lacking nothing, no mistakes, no failure. It can't mean that. It can only mean, you know, just you, you're not going to get it right, but try. Just try. Now, it would be nice if it meant that. But Jesus is very specific in the sentence he gives. Because he gives us the definition of perfect in the sentence where he says you have to be perfect. But he says, like, how does he define perfect? As your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, let's define perfection around God. Put God in the middle of that sentence and now let's talk what does the word perfect mean. If you say God is perfect, can we say as long as God tries his best, he's perfect. Can we say as long as God has a great attitude and, and, and he's really applying himself, as long as he's trying, he's perfect. How many of you would be happy with a God like that? Would you serve a God like that, that man, oh shame, he gets it right a lot of the time, but he's just, you know, is that God? I feel like I'm saying blasphemy here because it's just not possible. So Jesus says we have to be perfect as God is perfect. So we can't, we can't even dilute perfect. We can't even find wiggle room in there. We can't even diminish it in any way. Perfect is clear. Like God is perfect, so we must be perfect. Okay, Lord, now there's a challenge for you. Perhaps you don't know us well enough, Lord. I know you've been around on the earth at that time, about 31 years. Perhaps you've not really seen, perhaps you lived in a really secluded little space. You know, Nazareth, really nice people, very kind. But I don't know if you've seen the rest of us, Lord. But I don't know if it's a realistic expectation to say perfect. Perhaps I can do it, but I don't know about these other people, Lord. I really think you should adjust your expectations. Perfect is just not possible. But we know Jesus doesn't waste words. He's literally saying perfect. And the rest of the scripture unpacks that and talks about that. God's expectation and God's standard, the objective, the distance we have to go, the journey ahead is towards perfection, to be perfect. And God will settle for nothing less than perfection. Now, perhaps that's the point where we need to just close everything and say, let's go home and eat lunch. Because pff, it's just not possible. It's ridiculous. Because we know, even the scripture tells us that this is very hard, what we're talking about. In Romans 3, verse 23, it says the following. Paul, thinking through what Jesus said and applying it and you know, writing all these amazing things that he did. He said in Romans 3, verse 23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So how does the Bible do this? On the one hand, the expectation is created, you've got to be perfect. On the other hand, it says, but you can't. You've fallen short of the standard. It's not possible. This is the same book. This is one religion. This is one thought. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is it losing the plot here somewhere? Is Paul correcting Jesus? What's he talking about? Over the holiday time when we had our Christmas time here, we spoke about Matthew 1 and, and the angel coming to Joseph and Emmanuel, God with us. And remember these, this, these words in Matthew 1 verse 21. The angel spoke to Joseph and he said, and she will have a son, Mary will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
So the Bible builds for us this bridge between our reality and the expectation that God has that we be perfect. But we are not perfect. We are very far from perfect. We have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. But then the Bible says that God will build a way and make a way for us to move from our present condition of imperfection towards God's condition of perfection and actually achieve God's condition of perfection. The Bible is not holding out to us something, some carrot that we can never achieve. The Bible says you will achieve this. And that bridge is Jesus. And next week we're going to talk a little bit more about the bridge. But today I want to talk a little bit more about the problem. Is that okay? So if you're just going to listen to today's message, you may end up a bit discouraged. You may end up thinking, oh. So please, I'll try my best to give you hope at the end. But we have to, before we can talk about the solution, we have to understand the problem. And that's why we're going to talk about this three-letter word, S-I-N, sin. What is the thing that keeps us from achieving that mark which God has set for us? It's sin. All have sinned, the Bible defines the problem as sin. If the Bible had to say what is the one problem this world faces, it defines it with those three little letters in English language, S-I-N, sin. It just does that, says that's the problem. If you deal with that, you'll solve the problem. And that's what Jesus came and did. He came and dealt with that problem. So let's describe the problem a little bit. Let's think through this problem, if, you, if you'll think with me. Because this is not a problem that we talk about out there. It's a problem we talk about here. For all have sinned. Now, if you'll forgive me as to be so bold, but all includes you. I'm sorry to tell you, you have sinned. Anybody? Is that a shock to your system? Sin helps us. In, if we want to have conversations with people and talk to them about why we believe the Bible is true and, and prove things to them from Scripture, the easiest thing you can prove that the Bible talks about is sin. Because you don't have to prove it to anybody. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it exists. Everybody knows it's there. We all see it. We see it out there and we see it in ourselves. So in a sense, sin is a very easy topic to talk about because it is so obvious, it's real. But it's also a very difficult topic to talk about because although it's so real and it's so in our faces and we cannot deny it, it's very hard to accept for us, especially personally. Because if some person like me stands up here this morning and says to you, you are a sinner, you go, that's not nice. And let me add some language to that. The Bible uses many words to describe sin. Where's my list now? And it uses words, where did I put my list? It uses words like wicked, rebellious, transgression, lawless, disobedient, ungodly, unrighteous, full of iniquity, guilty, evil. So when I say to you, you are a sinner, <laughs> forgive me, but what I'm saying is, you have a problem with iniquity, guilt, evil, wicked, rebellious, transgression, 
lawlessness, disobedience, ungodliness, and unrighteousness. Now you all sit there very nicely and you take it because it's church. I'm, I'm the preacher and your mothers and fathers have taught you good manners and some of you are holding on to your seat. You actually want to leave right now but because you've got good manners and you, you, you sit there and you smile at me and you look like, but some of you, your demeanor is changing slightly because how dare you say to me that I'm evil because that's literally what I'm doing. How is that possible that I can do that? I mean, if I met you in the street and you didn't know who I am and, and I just walk up into you and say, you evil, wicked, rebellious person. How many of you are just going to stand there and look at me and go, this is nice. I'll be back for more next Sunday. Hey, how many of you will be tempted to prove the point and punch me in the mouth? It's not nice. Thank you, Ian. I just, you know. It's not, it's, this is not nice, particularly in our modern day society. You know, it's just like really judgmental. This is really not nice and kind and unloving to say this to a group of people. But now, I just want to remind you quickly, I'm using the Bible's language, not my own. And this is what the scripture says. So, how's that helpful? Let's, let's go a little further. Let's think through this thing, sin. One of the terms the Bible describes sin as, and uh, most often used in the New Testament, is to miss the mark. It comes from a Greek word, the word hamartia, which is an, a translation of the Hebrew word, hamartia, which literally means it's an archer's term to miss the mark. Therefore, hence, my target. I'm so sorry for you guys. You'll have to look on that side and see the target. Okay? We don't have this store in South Africa, so I don't have to cover my bases. This is target, okay? Those of you with American will understand. So God says, I have an objective, a target for mankind. I created you to live life the way I intended it to be lived. I created you for life that suits and fits who I am. Remember God's law, we spoke about it last week, is not something, it's, it's an expression of him. It's how God made the world and the universe to exist. And God says, if you want to be my children, if you want to, if you want to live in my, my house, then you have to hit the target, the bullseye. That's my expectation. That's the only way this universe works. It's the only way everything can, can come to its fullest and be right and good is if you hit the target. So when God made Adam and Eve, he made them perfect. And from their first moment on this planet, until they eat of the, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, everything they did is they hit the target all the time. Doof. They were perfect. It was natural to them. They didn't even think about it. They didn't try. They didn't have to work at it. They didn't have to practice hitting the target. From the word go, they hit the target all the time. Because they were perfect in God's glory. Living the way God intended life to be lived. But then they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what immediately happened was this problem. This is my archery equipment here this morning. I wanted to do paintball guns and everything. But Jackie said it's not safe. So now I have to play with toys. Very masculine. I have to lick it. Otherwise it doesn't stick. So nobody will play with my stuff. I lick it. Okay. So here's Adam and Eve. 
Come on. I should have a five-year-old do this. So here's Adam and Eve. Just, uh, just for posterity. <laughs> and now they've, they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God comes and he talks to them. And when they open their mouth and they're trying to please God and hit the target. <laughs> excuse me. There we go. Suddenly, what just happened? We can't hit the target anymore. We're missing the mark. And from that moment on, it's been our story as mankind that we cannot hit the target. Every now and then, somebody may get it right, but overall, we just cannot hit the target. And I'll define just now what I mean when I say that. We, we, we miss the mark. And remember, what is God's standard? What is God's expectation when it comes to hitting the target? Is he standard as long as you hit the board? Is he standard as long as it's within the red? What is he standard? Does that look center? I'm not even going to try and shoot that because, you know, I'll fail. That is the only acceptable result that God wants, that. But our problem is, if you think of the definitions of sin, rebellious, wicked, is that if you really leave us to our own devices as mankind, okay, if you really leave us to our own devices, if you really allow us to live in a place where God's word has not influenced us, there's no salt and light, there's no... You know what we do? We don't even try and aim for the target. We're not even interested in this. We're not even shooting in this direction because we put our own targets up. We say, I want what I want. I wanna live life the way I wanna live it. I set my own targets and my target is out there somewhere. Neil, are you ready for this? Wait, this is gonna be an absolute object lesson in disappointment. Oh, it's better than I thought. <laughs> Can I have my arrow back, please? Did you see I didn't lick that one? I was very kind. Now I licked it. It's now mine. We, we're not even interested in God's target. But that doesn't mean God is not interested in us. So he works, and through his word, he, he at least gives us, and the Old Testament was all about the nation of Israel, God reminding them of the target and bringing them back to the target, saying, this is my law, this is what I want. And God did the whole process so that ultimately Jesus could come and that in Christ, it becomes possible for us to actually do this. But that's next week. Let me not talk about that. But now we have this problem. We have an inability. Part of our problem is this inability to hit the target. On one hand, we have a problem. We don't even desire to hit the target. But even when we desire to hit the target, we're still unable to do it and we miss the target because of sin. So let's think through sin a little bit. Let's, let's define this thing for ourselves, this three little three-letter word. There's just a couple of points I wanna make on it. First of all, this word hamartia, and when we wanna understand it, we wanna define sin as the Bible does and, and say it's the, it's the basic problem. 
then the definition of sin we must develop must begin with God. God defines what sin is. We don't define what sin is. The moment we define what sin is, it's about us. But God defines sin because it's about Him. Everything is about Him. So how does God define sin? That's our question. That's our quest. That is what we want to understand is how God defines sin. God doesn't define sin by firstly what it does to you and me. He defines sin firstly by the impact it has on him and his relationship with us. Now last week I said God is perfect. He doesn't need us. He's completely self-sustaining unit. And if, you, if I said that and you say, but then how does our sin impact him? Because he chose it. Because he's a relational God. So sin is a very relational thing. Because he chose to make us in his image and to love us and to have covenant with us, he put himself in that position where our sin affects him. It doesn't change his godness. It doesn't diminish his power in any way. But it has an effect on him because of our, his relationship with us. And he takes it personal. He's a very personal God, and sin is a very personal offense against him. So the first definition of sin is it is a personal offense against a very personal God. You see, otherwise we make it about us, and we say sin is hurting somebody else, or sin is disrespecting somebody else, or whatever we make it, then we make it about ourselves. And then we start having to define you know, when am I disrespecting you? When am I hurting you? And, and then we come up with these great low cultural pieces of wisdom like as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's fine. That's our definition of sin. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's fine. But that's not God's definition of sin because if you want to follow that logic through, at least include God in the anybody. So if what I does hurt God, it's sin, even if it hurts nobody else. If I use the word hurt, please understand what I mean when I use the word hurt. Effect in, in terms of his relationship with us. So our sin is very personal. And God defines it. You see, as Christians, this is where we begin to get into trouble because we don't define sin according to our times, our culture. We don't define it according to our modern understanding or reality. Not that those things aren't important and speak into those understandings, but ultimately we come back and we say, God how do you define sin? What is your target measure? And this is very uncomfortable because the world actually believes, man, as long, un, until it doesn't suit them, they believe this. As long as you're aiming in the right direction, you're fine. Anything goes. Until anything I do hurts you, then it suddenly doesn't go anymore. It's very subjective how we define it. James 4 verse 4, listen how God thinks about sin. Think about how he speaks about this as a relational, personal reality. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's quite radical, quite, I don't know if you'll fit into the 21st century, you know, tolerance movement. You know, he draws quite a strict line there. But that's not me, I, that's God. Secondly, and when we define sin, first of all, sin is a very personal reality against a very personal God. 
Secondly, sin is universal. Romans 3, 23, 4, all have sinned. There is not one single person sitting here today watching on YouTube, listening on the radio, however you're participating with this message. Even those that aren't participating in the message, there's not one person that can say, I have not got a sin problem. Every one of us has a sin problem. Sorry to say. We all have it. It's a universal issue. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. If God's standard is perfection, then every time I don't hit that, I'm failing. And then I'm in sin. And the scripture says if you miss the mark once, you're guilty. Because then you're not perfect. <gasps> That's terrible. Is really, is that the kind of God that I want to serve? Well, I know that's hard when you think about it from your perspective. I, you know, it's re really, God, you expect that of me? But it's really nice when you think about it that that's the one God, you know, making justice in the universe. Because then that's a standard for everybody. Oh, okay. That makes it better for me to live in a world where everybody else has to be kept up to such a high standard. Perhaps God can be a little bit more forgiving with me. If he, he should know me. He should know my heart. And if I just get in the same direction, he should be fine with me. But everybody else, they must hit the mark. I'm just saying, just, you know, sometimes. But we all have a universal sin problem. Do you know that there's not one person on this planet that has ever lived, is living now, will ever live, that is more guilty than anybody else of the sin problem or less guilty of anybody else? You cannot look to your neighbor now, if that neighbor is your wife or your husband, I suggest you don't look in their direction now. Find somebody else. You cannot look at that person and say, you are a greater sinner than what I am in terms of the sin condition. Or I am a lesser sinner than what you are. You can't do that. We are all equally guilty before God. Sin is a universal problem. It's the same. It's the great equalizer. There is no one group of people that is more sinful than another. We all have the same foundational condition, which God says is we have a fallen nature or a sinful nature. We have this tendency, this propensity towards the sin. It has become our default position. Like I said earlier, it's the easiest thing in the world to prove. Just open your eyes. Everybody's got it. We all are universal in this. So yes, it is universal. We are all equal in it. Yet all sin is not equal. Oh, hello. What do I mean when I say that? If I firstly understand that what makes me guilty before God is not how close I get to the mark, is that I miss the mark, then I understand everything outside of this is sin and is therefore equally sinful, but certain sins, obviously, how further away they get from the will of God can have greater consequences and lead to more evil. And therefore, they are not equal in their effect and in their impact that they have. Can you live with that? Do you want to stone me? Shoot arrows at me? I'll give you an arrow. I dare you to try and hit me. The Bible allows for this. The Bible says, that there is a progression of sin. There is a development of sin. In Ezekiel 8, the angel takes Ezekiel and he wants to show him the sin of Israel. 
And he takes him first. He takes him on like this progressive story, this journey. Go read Ezekiel 8. He says, first of all, the first part that I see, let me show you, is the people have sinned and they've started worshiping other idols, other gods. And then he says, now let me take you to the next room and let me show you how they progressed from that to even a greater sin. Now the priests, I've joined them in worshiping idols and the priests are actually facilitating idol worship. That's worse than where the people just worshiped idols. But hold on, it gets even worse. He says, walk with me further and I'll show you the, the, the real end result of all of this, how terrible that these people have not only worshiped idols, the priests have not only instituted idols, but all of this led to them starting to sacrifice their children to the idols. And God says, and this I cannot tolerate. And he acts on that and he punishes that. I don't have time to unpack it, but the scripture does delineate between sins that are done, for instance, in ignorance and how God responds to that and sins that are willfully done. Now, both you are equally sinful. You are equally guilty of sin. You cannot say, oops, I didn't know. Because it's not about the individual act. It's about the condition of the heart. Just the fact that you did that and it's possible for you to do it, even if you did it in ignorance, is because you have a sinful nature. That's the bottom line problem. So, but the Bible does say God gives grace where, where there's people that have sinned and they, they didn't understand. Still equally skilled, but if you willfully do it, God deals with that in a different way. Think about it like this. The Bible even says position has an impact on how your sin is dealt with. Does the New Testament and even in the Old Testament not say that we are all should be, you know, our sins should be dealt with. But if you're a leader, what does the Bible say in the New Testament? You are to be held doubly accountable. Doubly accountable. Why? So what you're literally saying is that if a person like me does a sin and, and somebody else does a sin that has no position within the church, for instance, that those two sins are different if we do exactly the same sin. Is that what the Bible says? Yes. Why? Because of consequence, because of impact. I have to be held to a different place and standard if I understand the scripture correctly, according to what it says. Fortunately, it also says double grace is therefore given and, and, and double honor, which means more money. <laughs> Come on. Let's not miss that little part. I mean, it's just the Bible. I, I'm just quoting. Do you understand that while we are all equally sinners and not one of us can look at another person and say, you are a bigger sinner than what I am. We can look at a sin and say, that sin has a bigger impact than this sin. But Jesus ultimately made it easy for us. He said, you say that it is wrong to look upon somebody and to kill somebody. I say to you, even thinking it is why? Because it's not about the act, first of all. It's about the condition of the heart. I want to finish. I know we've gone over time. So let me personalize this. When it comes to me, my focus is not on other people's sin. It's on my sin and understanding my condition. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says the following. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom 
I am foremost of all, of whom he literally says, I am the biggest sinner of everybody. How can Paul say that? Did he go and measure his sins against every other person living or has lived and, and came to a to sort of a mathematical conclusion, some scale that no. What is he saying is he's saying, when from my perspective, the reality of my sin is so real to me that to me, it's the biggest sin in the world. It's not about quantity. It's not about effect. It's about condition. And I know how my sin affects God and it breaks my heart. The size of it doesn't matter. The scope of it doesn't matter. Just the existence of it breaks my relationship with God and has an effect on a very personal God. And I hate it. I don't want to have it in my life. Thank you, Jesus. Just in this past week, as I was preparing for this message, it's wonderful when you preach because who do you, guess who gets to hear the message first? Me. So I'm preparing the message and God is busy working with me. And as God is speaking to me, I come to, you know, some of the times here with a week of prayer and fasting and a great times of prayer. And as I'm praying and just in that moment, God shows me my own heart just for a moment. Because in that week I was dealing with a situation, not here, so let me quickly say that, not here, not anybody here, just a situation where with somebody that's really hurting people, causing damage. And I was trying to figure out now, what? You know, you always have to figure out now, why does God deal with this? And, and as I was wrestling with this, I, I sort of came to the conclusion where I thought, I didn't say it fortunately to anybody, but now I'm gonna say it, but I did think that to solve the problem, the best would be if God can just take that person home to be with him. <laughs> now that's Christian speak for kill him, Lord. Just take them out. Send the squad from heaven. The guys with the big arrows and the swords and just take them home to be with you, Lord. And as I was just, you know, dealing with, and, and, and the Lord showed me my heart and the Lord says, hmm, yes, you can be pretty self-righteous. How dare I put myself in that position? How quick am I to forget the things God has forgiven me for? The ways and the times that he didn't punish me for such stupid things that I've thought, said, and done. In that moment, I felt like the biggest sinner on this planet. Forget everybody else's sin. I am a sinner because of my heart condition. Now, fortunately, I know Jesus, and I know that that doesn't change my position as a child, as a son of God, but that God is wanting me to live beyond and, and, and deal with that so that that doesn't become my problem and grow in me. Because at the bottom of that thought that I had and that approach where I dare put myself in a place where I think I'm somehow better than some other person, I have less of a sin problem than that person has, there's pride right at the bottom of that. And if, if that's not dealt with, that pride will fully blossom into the most terrible things. But praise God for his spirit. So I had to repent. And it was quite emotional for me to repent and say, Lord, I'm, forgive me for my small-mindedness, for my just, you know, 
just my, my own brokenness in this. Will the worship team guys just join me and then I'm, I'm wrapping up. So I'm sorry to say this to you, do I really am. You're a sinner, you have a problem. But let me continue the sentence. If you don't understand that, you'll never understand forgiveness. And if you don't understand forgiveness, you'll not understand love. Jesus himself said, to those who much has been forgiven, they will love much. Those who think they've been forgiven of a little will love little. You see, when I get revelation of my sin condition, it's not about comparing my sin against somebody else and saying, well, they've done more. I recognize my sin condition and it becomes so real to me, but I'm, I don't stop there because when I see my sin condition, bigger than that, I see a father that says, but I love you. And suddenly I get lost in his love because he loves me. He loves me. So I don't really care if you walk up to me and say to me, you are a sinner. I go, thank you, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And you'll probably be true and correct in saying that. It will probably be true. If you say that, you will be correct. But because I know that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is, yes, I'm a sinner. And I don't want to diminish my sin. I don't want to, to find a loophole. I don't want to you know, sort of you know, cover it up rationalize it. I want to see it for what it is because if I see my sin for what it is, I see my Savior for who He is. And I experience His full forgiveness. So this morning, can I ask just simply this. Next week, we're going to carry on and talk about the solution. But can we today just say, Father, here's my heart. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he went to the Lord and he said, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. That didn't mean he didn't sin against Bathsheba, that he didn't sin against the, the nation and everybody. That just meant that my first responsibility is to make right with you, Lord. Because you define sin. Won't you stand with me this morning? And I, there's, there's no convic condemnation in this. There's, there's not anybody that should feel, oh, this is a truth that we can accept and say, Lord, thank you for the hope that I have in you. I can hit the mark in Christ. But for now, Lord, perhaps I've forgotten the condition of my heart. Because if you want to go the distance, it's very important that you keep remembering the condition of your heart and the possibilities of your heart just going astray. So we don't focus on sin. We don't spend a lot of time there. But sin leads us to a revelation of who God is and that's where we spend our time. But we do have moments where we say, Lord, I put my heart before you. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. You may be new to the faith. You may not even have started the journey of faith or you may be long in the faith. I want you to go the distance with the Lord. So let's just close our eyes. Father, it's a very personal moment. and Forgive me if in my communication, trying to bring across the point that I, if I pushed things in it, it made anybody feel that you don't love them, Lord, because that's not the heart of it, Lord. I pray right now that every person will know that they are perfectly loved by a perfect God.
and that no sin is too great to be forgiven. That no sin is the end of the story. It's not the full stop, Lord. It's the comma. Because the sentence continues. But God in Christ has come to give us life and life in abundance. But right now, Lord, we ask that if we have become just comfortable in a place where it's okay to miss the mark, where we give ourselves space which perhaps you don't give us, just speak to us right now, Holy Spirit. If there's anything you feel God saying to you, this, I, I want you to deal with this in your life or just shows you, then all you need to do is to say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for this. And God's forgives. If today you recognize that you're a sinner and you've not come to the to the cross of Christ and you've never said, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin, wash me clean then you don't have to go home that same way. We want to pray with you and help you in that and say, you can be forgiven. Your life can be made new in Christ, will be made new in Christ if you receive His forgiveness. If you are here today in this place, perhaps even listening or watching, and you want to say, I need Jesus to forgive my sinful condition. Won't you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Thank you for those hands that are going up. Lord Jesus, I pray right now for every hand that is raised that this real truth that Jesus died on a cross, Jesus came to save us from our sin, will for every person be very real right now. Come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We want to pray with you. We want to help you in this moment just to make sure that you know that God loves you and that God has a plan for you. So if you've raised your hand, would you be so bold as to come to the front and come and stand here with me? I'd ask you to take up your belongings, bring them with you. But I think it'll be just a great thing if we can. This is a big moment. We don't want to just let you pray a prayer and then off you go. We want to in some way try and just support you and help you in this. Just come to the front. Thank you to those that are making their way. Pastors and elders and leaders will be here to meet you. Come. Come, let, the, let us just pray with you. Father, I thank you for your spirit that walks with each of us. I pray that every person as they leave this place will not have a heaviness upon them that is, but a, a hope and a joy and an understanding of how much you love them and the hope that there is in you. I pray for the Lord's blessing upon your life. I pray for his growth, for his working in your life, that he that has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. You will go the distance in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for giving us the time. To, to bring this to its logical end and conclusion and to 
do a good job of considering God's word and what it means to us. Please remember to be back with us next week and we're going to carry on. But through this week, as you fellowship, as you build community with other believers, allow God to speak to you in that context and in your own space as you engage with the word and with prayer. Allow God to speak with you and be with you. We have baptism after the service now in the function hall. If you want to be baptized, please join us there. If you want prayer for anything else, you're welcome to come to the front. Please give the children's workers an extra hug. I know we had frustrations this morning and this service went longer. So just thank them, love them for looking after your children and ministering to them and discipling them. May the Lord bless you. Have a great week. Thank you.